0: If you will just lean back and relax, I'll tell you a little ghost story. Please don't hesitate to turn out your lights. I'm sure the warm glow from the picture tube will be sufficient to melt all your fears of the dark. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the Master of Suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Uh, We made it to episode five, um, and uh, I want to thank, once again, Henry Jarvis for being on episode four and talking about rope and digging into a younger generation's perspective on Hitchcock and what what influence, if any, he had on the young man or any of his friends around him. Uh, If you want to listen to that episode, go to realnerdspodcast.com, and you can listen to episode four, The Failed Teachings of Jimmy Stewart. Um, It's not the full title, but again, we didn't really get to talk a lot about Rope, because there's not much to discuss about Rope. It takes place in one room, and it's a play. Um, uh, I also want to thank, as usual, Brad Haig for getting this stuff up on the Real Nerds feed and uh, moderating that website and making sure that uh, you can have your Hitchcock goodness all day, every day. Um, but now we're on to episode five. Um, and uh, by the uh, pedigree of our guest, uh, it's very much the Empire Strikes Back of the shamley silhouette. Hell yeah. Um, so, but um, I have brought this gentleman here to discuss a film of Hitchcock's oeuvre that is uh, probably his most lauded in terms of the awards circuit and most certainly one of the ones that we can't not talk about when we discuss Hitchcock. Um, but it's also a film that puts us in a tricky position in regards to discuss it as a Hitchcock film because for how much Hitchcock has involved in it, there is also the sticky the sticky fingers of one David O. Selznick on this project um, who brought Hitchcock to America to make this uh, adaptation of a very popular book by an author whom Hitchcock had already adapted to lesser success. Um, It is a small little film about a big manor and a woman who keeps haunting it, and she doesn't even show her face in the movie, (laughs) and it's Rebecca. And with me to discuss Rebecca, uh, you know him from the Real Nerds podcast. Uh, You know him from the Real Nerds pod show. Uh, you know him from his Blame E.T. for Everything campaign. <laughs> Please welcome Mr. James Hart. Hey. Hey.
1: Thanks. We uh, Thanks for having uh, me on your on your fun little thing. Thank
0: you for coming to my rescue to talk about Rebecca at a time when <laughs> you are about to raise a child. <laughs> or not about to, er, are raising a child. Uh, yeah,
1: I'm at the very beginning of, of 18 to 24 years, depending on how things go, of... uh having somebody else live in my house i
0: love that there's a a range (laughs) yeah you know you're a realistic Um, parent (laughs) yeah you know whatever
1: uh raise till success great raise Um, till success indeed yeah i I will say you know i have a lot of experience doing doing podcasty stuff Uh, i have not a lot of experience not talking on a podcast though so that was really awkward for the first like you know five minutes there where i'm like wait this is I'm supposed to not say anything. I, I gotta be quiet. Well, so I'm not good at being quiet.
0: My assumption is is that most podcasts do a pre-recorded intro and then get right into their interview, but I make them wait. <laughs> yeah. And if there are other podcasts yes. who do the same thing and I'm stealing their thunder, I apologize. Mm-hmm. I'm fairly sure I'm stealing someone's thunder. No. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about stolen thunder, the new Ben Stiller picture. We're here to talk about <laughs> Rebecca. Yeah. Um.
1: My f- my favorite Hitchcock film.
0: Yes. So before we get into it, though. This is the Shamley Silhouette, and we always ask, how did you get into Hitchcock? How young do you begin your journey with the uh, portly man from England who comes over and makes the scariest fucking movies and the most suspenseful movies, the most exciting movies of an older generation?
1: Um, that's a really hard question because like, Hitchcock is a cornerstone of film. Um, And I've been into movies since I was since before I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, So my family was a like watch a movie every Friday night kind of family. Mm-hmm. Um, But it was more than just that, because uh, part of what happened was my brother and I are seven years apart. and I'm the younger, which meant that there was always this careful balance when I was a kid where my parents were trying to find stuff that they could show us that would entertain both a, you know, a 12 year old and a five year old. A ten-year-old and a seventeen-year-old, like it's a difficult span. That's that's a hard um, gap. Man. Yeah, and so sometimes they would like they would go through little sprints where it, it's the perfect environment for you to grow a young um, film buff because they'd decide like, oh, well, you guys have never seen Oklahoma, Ugh. and so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go through and, and and like educate you on musicals and. You know, for the next few months, you know, every couple movies we watch that, you know, on a Friday night will be a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, And they'd have like a little list where they're like, oh, we got to show you Guys and Dolls and Singing in the Rain and, and, you know, all these different things that um that they were excited about and remembered well. And so Hitchcock films weren't super common in there, but there were a couple of them. Right. So mm-hmm. my mom, of course, was like, well, we have to watch Rear Window. She adores Rear Window, mm-hmm. um, so there were a couple of them like that. I don't think, but not a lot. I mean, there's still a few I still haven't seen. Would you say that um, Rear
0: Window was the first then, or yeah,
1: oh, Rear Window was has definitely got to be the first. Okay, because um, we we've we've got yeah.
0: we've got to kept track now. Um, it's The Birds for three of the guests, and then North by Northwest for one of them, and now wow. Rear Window. Um,
1: um, yeah, I didn't see. I don't. Yeah. Birds, I saw like on TV at some point and thought it was weird, um, and so I didn't care. And then, <laughs> uh, North by Northwest, I didn't see for a while until I, I bought the Blu ray, um, as part of like my list of shame, where I was like, no, I, or no, 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 actually, I was in, I was still living at home, so it would have been like late high school mm-hmm. when I finally saw North by Northwest. It was uh, sort of the first time that I went through a list of shame where I was like, I, ne- at that point, there were some things I'd missed, like, I'd never seen Jaws. I'd never seen North by Northwest. Um, And it's too bad because I think there's some of those films, North by Northwest probably being one of them, Mm -hmm. that if you hit a kid at the right age, they'd probably really enjoy. Like I think a 13, 14-year-old finds North by Northwest great. And then by the time I was 18, 19, I was like, some of this is silly. (laughs) Um, But like awesome. Like you watch it and visually it's awesome. But then at the same time you're like, this is – this is kind of silly. Oh, there's there's um, so many loopholes. Oh, yeah, yeah, plot yeah, holes yeah.
0: and all kinds of holes. Uh, Actually, but th- it, it's funny you say that because like it's not a Hitchcock film, but um when I was like 10 or 11, I saw the original Ocean's 11 before I saw the remake. Oh, sure. And in my mind, the Frank Sinatra one was just as cool as the Soderberg one. Sure. It doesn't do the same for me these days, but sure. but but I get yeah. your point,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a time where, you know, especially if it's presented to you a certain way. Mm-hmm. If you were 12 or 13 and somebody was like this is a Hitchcock film. He's a big deal, and this is North by Northwest, and it's a big deal. You should watch this movie. Similar to like how I saw Cool Hand Luke. Like I probably saw Cool Hand Luke when I was twelve, and my dad was like, "I really love this movie. This guy eats a lot of eggs," and I was like, "That's weird." Um, <laughs> that's another. And, that's another poster
0: quote for a right. thing I'm gonna make on my phone. <laughs> and it's like, uh,
1: you know, it, it, you end up thinking it's really boring and slow, but at the same time, you appreciate like why your dad likes it. Mm-hmm. So that similar thing would have happened. I didn't see Rebecca until I started trying to check off some of the ones I'd never seen like Lady Vanishes um and so I I bought Rebecca and threw it in and then you know by the time the movie was over I was like this fucking movie mm-hmm. like it's weird and different and super smart and then there's Rebecca and Rebecca specifically is so cool yes. um I've said a number of times she is one of my favorite villains, and I think one of the best villains of all time.
0: I I would Um, agree. I would actually... I'm going to be adding to that later that there's actually... If not two villains, then a villain and a and a henchman. Oh, totally. Yes. And we'll talk I, about that henchman. I consider her a henchman. Oh yes. yeah, very okay. Cool. So yeah. we're on the same page. But yeah. So um. So you but you have seen a lot of the essentials though, like a like a Psycho or a Vertigo. Or, oh, of course. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. you you do like you you go through the basically the universal hits. That, yeah. Like, is like five movies. Yeah, but there's
1: a couple good ones I haven't seen. Like I haven't seen Dial M. Mm-hmm. Um. Man. Now they escape me. Um, I'd love to actually do what you're doing at some point and specifically go through and watch like a lot of the old presents stuff if I could get a hold of it. Yeah, um, they're
0: act- well, they're all available on DVD and they are on like Prime streaming. Um, cool. I-, I would recommend DVD though because it's cheap to get the whole series as a whole. Yeah. But there, since they're anthology, like there's no. There's no through line or, like, characters you're following around. So, like, it's just... You just jump in. The only character you're following around is Hitchcock making jokes (laughs) at the beginning and the end of the show.
1: It might be one of those things that's, like, Top Gear where it's worth it to go find a list of, like, the ones that people think are really great. Um, (laughs) Just because you you know that they're not going to always be... I'll have I have a I
0: have a disc for you tomorrow then when next time we see each other at my place, because that that would be great. One of the box sets that I got to prepare for this um, journey has a disc that has like 10 top 10 mystery. It has one of the best episodes, which is lamb to the slaughter, which is uh, one that Hitchcock himself directed. Oh, cool. And it's it's not to spoil anything, but it's about a woman who kills a man with a certain piece of an animal's body.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. and yeah. then she feeds it to the cops. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, okay. I know this, oh, so is, so this is this is this is a classic. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I okay. haven't seen it. I've heard about it many times.
0: Okay, yes. Yeah. Spo- what- spoiler alert. It's 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 if it's you're great. watching it in the fifties, it's dark as shit. Oh <laughs> hell yeah,
1: dude. If you're watching it today, it's dark as sh- well. I haven't seen it, but the story itself yeah. is like is like my favorite murder level mm-hmm. dope ass story. Yeah, no. Um, it's, well,
0: it's the way it's shot, it's shot for television, so it doesn't yeah, I'm have sure. the atmosphere to it. But the but it's almost like it's. It's actually got a modern feel to it because of the fact that it's shot for television. In that sense, so there's like a sinister angle to it yeah. because it's with key lighting and yeah. you know, standard television drama lighting. So yeah. there's no because there's no dynamic lighting by any stretch of the imagination. Like there's no shadows and slashes mm-hmm. across people's faces, stuff like that. So, yeah, um, but um,
1: my mom loved that episode. That's what you should do mm-hmm. if you. Get around to doing that episode and then get my mom on to talk about, like, all she'll do is she'll just be going, like,
0: and then she feeds it to the cops. It's so smart. Like, but it might be good. Can I do, I'll do a podcast with your mom called, like, Carol Describes alfred hitchcock presents. yeah carol
1: remembers alfred hitchcock presents oh <laughs> uh, every
0: episode but she'll have to rewatch it to get to to get reminded of it and then yeah. we'll give her a couple days and then have her describe it <laughs> yeah. with like hazy memory because like that's how i am when i th- watch something i'm like yeah and then the guy did the thing i can't remember his name that was my
1: pitch uh the super off track now but that yeah. was my pitch to my friend dan uh I used to be roommates with Yeah, where I really want to do a podcast with him where I made him watch really shitty big budget films <laughs> that I had seen, but not recently. And then I was going to have him just describe them to me. And then we would just chat because i really loved the idea of him watching specifically the third resident evil film, having not seen any of the others. And then he describes what happens. And then I would just like, it would slowly unlock that memory for me where I'd be like, oh, yeah, and then there's a room full of a billion clones, and we, you don't know why. That,
0: that's, uh, that's how I've gotten to watch some of the films you've recommended, like Hansel <laughs> and Gretel Witch Hunters comes oh, from so that good. exact description yeah. that you've done. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, so we're going to talk about Rebecca. <laughs> and not Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, but though. But we should. We should. We, I will do a Jeremy Renner podcast <laughs> at some point. Uh, or a Will Ferrell podcast, and we will have to talk about it because well, there you executive go. producers. There you go. Will Ferrell would do. Um, but uh, so anyway, we will talk a little bit about Rebecca, the film of the, of the evening.
1: Academy Award winner Adam McKay's <laughs> Hansel and Gretel: Witch Hunters. Hunters.
0: <laughs> he didn't direct it though. No. Um, I I I think that man will do fine going forward. He's. Yeah. I mean, he's made two pretty good films. But, yeah. Um, anyway, we're going to be talking about Rebecca. Uh, uh, up the top, uh, the film from 1940, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Why do I have to mention that he directs <laughs> the movies each time? I've done this the four podcast. weeks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and I'm like, wow. that's not necessary, Zach. Stop one of it. these days,
1: you'll do one that's not.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, produced by David O. Something. Amphetamine Selznick. <laughs> um, uh, David and, uh, Oxycodone uh, Selznick. Yeah, uh, screenplay by Robert E. Sherwood and Joan Harrison. Joan Harrison, Joan Harrison by the way. Uh, Hitchcock's longtime secretary, then turned associate producer uh, on her own right, ended mm-hmm. up running a lot of the television show. Um, and um, it's an a- and the adaptation um, was by Philip McDonald and Michael Hogan. Um, and it's based on the book Rebecca by Daphne du uh, Maurier. Um, we should talk a little bit about Daphne du Maurier because mm-hmm. she's very essential to not just Rebecca, obviously, but also Hitchcock's career mm-hmm. um, because this is not the first time – that Hitchcock does a Maurier story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one he does is Jamaica Inn in 1939, still in London, uh, with the noted director and actor Charles Lawton. Um, I say noted director when he only directed one film, Night of the Hunter, um, and then was never able to make one again. But he was a very big actor prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lawton, at the time of filming Jamaica Inn, had a lot of control over his sets, and he basically wasted a lot of Hitchcock's time. <laughs> um, an adaptation of a, of a book that DeMaurier didn't even like think too highly of from what I understand. Um, but, you know, Rebecca comes after Jamaica Inn. Um, and Rebecca is a runaway success um, to the same levels of Gone with the Wind degree at the time, which is the other more famous film that uh, David O. Selznick produced um, uh, an adaptation of um, uh But so Rebecca goes through a series of different drafts, different versions, through various different people because David O. Selznick was a madman who strived for perfection to get the adaptation correct onto the screen. Um, The best way to see the examples of how far he's willing to go with this is not even with Rebecca. You need to look at Gone with the Wind. I don't like Gone with the Wind. However, oh, the behind the scenes of Gone with the Wind are some of the most amazing stories you will ever hear because of how insane everything is. Yeah, like there's a search for to for the perfect person to play Scarlett O'Hara. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and it ended up being the wife of the star of one of our of, of one of the stars of our movie today. Um, so uh, th- there's. There's a level of perfection that O. Selznick tries to keep hitting each time, partially because that's just how he was trained as a film producer and partially because, like I said, he does amphetamines. So this is not going away, by the way, (laughs) because a lot of decisions we'll talk about, I attribute directly to the latter discussion. (laughs) Um, But so um, uh, but uh, at the time that he's trying to get Rebecca done, he also like finally wins for Gone with the Wind and whatnot. Hitchcock is doing very well overseas and getting a lot of laudits and praise for films like The Lady Vanishes, uh, The 39 Steps, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original film with Peter Lorre, and Young and Innocent. These are all essential Hitchcock films that we will be talking about on a later episode. So he gets the opportunity to sign with Selznick and go to America. Once he gets into Selznick's grasp, He drives Hitchcock fucking nuts. Selznick drives Hitchcock up a fucking wall. Basically, Rebecca boils down to two very strong personalities fighting for control over a project. And when it's all said and done, the predominant vision of Rebecca is David O. Selznick in the respect of the overall story. What is in Hitchcock's control is what we are seeing on the screen and how it's being presented. So... That might have sounded like I said the same thing, but basically Hitchcock's interpretation and the way he sets the scene, blocks the scene, directs his actors, shows off what he's bringing to the story while while staying in the parameters of what Selznick is setting up as the script and the story. So basically Selznick wants to adapt Rebecca almost page for page, which if you look throughout history of books being adapted into films, that's not possible. Because or a good books, idea or a good idea because books and films are two very different mediums.
1: And from what I've I haven't read the book, but from what I've heard, there's a whole lot of filler in that book, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of like sort of nonsense. And even the end of, the end of the book is a lot different. Yeah, and we'll um, and we'll
0: get to that because it has a lot to yeah. do with how um, Maxim De Winter is portrayed. Yeah. Um, but um, so anyway, the film is made though. Um, we um we have amongst our. We have a slew of stars in this film. Uh, we have Joan Fontaine uh, playing Who's the second Mrs. Awesome. De Winter. Yeah, uh, w- w- the reason the, the she is only character. called the second Mrs. De Winter actually, she's not even called that in the movie. She, in in the in the title, it's called I. Yeah, like that's how she's presented as I. Uh-huh. Um, that that's because the character of Rebecca uh, is the reason why she doesn't get an actual name, right? Amongst other things.
1: Yeah, we'll we can, we'll talk in a minute about. Um, and then the um,
0: Lawrence Olivier, the noted um, chin, uh, <laughs> chin, <laughs> the crimson chin, um, and uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier, uh, noted for um, his Shakespeare adaptations, his marriage to Vivian Lee and his portrayal by Kenneth Branagh in *My Week with Marilyn*. Was <laughs> um, <laughs> being an alcoholic dick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yelling at Michelle Williams. That is what yeah. Lawrence Olivier was known for. Uh, he plays... You're beautiful, but I hate you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he plays Maxim DeWinter, owner of Manderley. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have uh, the High Vulcan Priestess uh, from Search for Spock playing <laughs> Mrs. Danvers. <laughs> 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 that is not a joke. That is the truth. I bet. Uh, G- Dame Judith Anderson plays Mrs. Danvers. Huh. Uh, and then you also have George Sanders, Reginald Denny, Gladys Cooper, C. Aubrey Smith, Nigel Bruce, uh, Melville Cooper, Leo G. Carroll, Leonard Carey. There is a slew of popular character actors who, before and after, have extensive careers. Um, Some of whom
1: show up for, like, two seconds.
0: Yeah. um, Well, there's one that shows up for more than two seconds. That's my favorite. And we'll talk about him because I think he's uh, uh, some kind of meta joke in the movie. Okay. Um, But, uh, so, anyway, we'll we'll break into Rebecca right now um, and go through the plot of uh, Rebecca de Mornay's book. So... Uh, the film opens with uh, the Selznick Ranch and uh, showing you how Selznick is very proud of his ranch. Is it really? that? That's the Selznick production offices. They're like? Oh,
1: you mean the... Sorry, you're talking about the the Selznick sign at the beginning. The Selznick, the Selznick, Selznick at picture. The beginning is I outside. thought you were talking about the opening shot of the house. No, 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 no. no. Oh, okay. No,
0: gotcha. The, no, the, 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 the Selznick thing. It, yes. It was a, it was a Which bad, is a weird,
1: awkward thing, yeah. yeah. It's a bad joke to... I forgot that it's even there because it happens, and I'm like, what the fuck is this about?
0: Yeah, and I, I'm going to say that the opening credit is... David o. Selznick is proud to bring you the picture, the picture adaptation of Daphne Daphne Du Mornay's right. international bestseller, yeah, Rebecca. Yeah. So already we're dealing with Hitchcock not There's having like
1: three big egos, including Rebecca. Three big <laughs> egos' names before you even get the Hitchcock's name. Yeah,
0: exactly. David yeah. O. Selznick, Daphne de Mornay... and Rebecca, Rebecca all
1: get a bigger lead than Hitchcock. Yeah,
0: which I mean, you know, I I just. I just imagine him sitting there going like, it's fine. I'm going to make foreign correspondent. You dick. Better. Yeah. You <laughs> um, dick. Um, but so uh, but so we get these kind of ethereal atmospheric opening credit sequence. And then, like a ghost, we move through the iron gates outside the property and move through the windy road up to Manderley, hearing the infamous or the the famous opening lines of the book, which are now the, the inf- opening lines of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dreamt of Manderley again, and I wandered yeah. through the windy road, and then I saw Mister Toad, and he had a wild ride. And... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Um, but uh, and then you you push in on the manor, but it's all in a crushed black. Yeah. So we don't know what's happened there yet, but we do see a light poking through. So maybe is it
1: destroyed at the beginning? Is she remembering it? In
0: I believe she's remembering it because because since it's it's so crushed in darkness. My assumption is is that we're led to believe that like that it's still standing. Yeah. As if something very terrible happened there that no one ever knew about. Yeah, yeah. But
1: it's darker. Yeah. It's not as cool of a shot as like later when she first sees it and the house looks really good. Right. It definitely in that first shot is.
0: Yeah, but it's like, but it's Defe- almost—it's a defeated house. Yeah, and it's partially silhouetted to not show the details. So, right. But then there, like I said, there is a light that shines through. Okay. So for all we know, the house is still operative. Yeah. So um, and then it cuts to a cliff um, where um, in the it's south. S- of It's Such France.
1: an awkward cut too, because you don't know what the fuck you are. Yeah. Like, <laughs>
0: but, but it disorients you, and it gets yeah. you, and that's and that's kind of like it's part of like Hitchcock's ability to kind of like push you into a situation head yeah. front. Um, and then kinda have you deal with it. I mean it's it's a little antithetical to how he builds up the suspense. Mm-hmm. But the winding down to Mandalay, then cutting to that, we've already set a mood of some sort totally. and now we just kinda dive into the action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we also are, are remembering it from I's perspective. <laughs> right. Um, which of course um indicates that, you know, and it
1: it starts the red herring of uh, of Max having a dark past
0: yeah, yeah exactly. early
1: on. Like, when you first see him, you're like, what's with this dude? He's quiet and doesn't like to talk to this bossy lady.
0: Yeah, no, um, what, what, what is Lawrence Olivier thinking? How many people has he stabbed? Yeah, is he thinking about how I'm going to be Kenneth Brano when I grow up? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, um, That's a fun joke. Wish you keep going with that one. <laughs> um, yeah, beat it to death. It'll be great. Yeah, <laughs> with a barley stick. Um, and so, um, but he, he he's staying at Monte Carlo, uh in the south of france um and um
1: but it's off season and none of the popular people are there right now
0: not not only that but uh the most the least popular person is there <laughs> mrs edith van hopper
1: oh she's the best we
0: we'll talk about her because i think she's responsible for everything that happens in the book yeah. um, or in the movie um so mrs edith van hopper employs i the second miss de winter um, as a traveling companion. Yeah. So basically a secretary or an assistant of yeah. some kind. Slash, hey, play cards with me because I'm a lonely fuck. Yeah. <laughs> She's
1: literally – there's a great joke in there where she says something about, like, oh, a few years ago there was this writer, this young writer, but every time he would see me, he would run away. <laughs> he must have uh, – Oh what was it? She she's got so oh he must have been mad, like madly in love with me and just couldn't uh control it. Like <laughs> she she twists like literally people run away from you because you're the worst. So
0: you you know how sometimes on the show when I say I wish I could live you could live in my head for a day? Yeah. That's Somewhat close to that. I I don't have that type of delusion, but I have delusion. <laughs> Hers is specific. Yeah,
1: she thinks that people run away from her because they're just madly in love with her. Yeah, exactly. She's just the best. Yeah, no, exactly.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, like, it, it, of course, she, she kind was. of
1: feels like Cinderella's stepmom.
0: Yes, like, I was. Gonna, she yeah.
1: she feels like,
0: and it's not even like she's doing anything mean specifically. It's just like she does have a hold over, I because of the and, employment thing.
1: And she she starts the main theme and oppression of Rebecca early on because in that scene um there's a scene after like they've talked to Max for the first time mm-hmm. where um she says something oh no no it's actually it's after the uh, they tell her that she's getting married mm-hmm. and she like just lays all this like shame and bullshit on top of her mm-hmm. and is like well Wait, have you been having se- well, she doesn't say it this way, but she's like, "Have you been having sex with him when you're not even married yet?" And, and have you and been
0: doing something that you shouldn't? Yes, that's the way Th- she says that's it. That's the way they'd say yes. it in the 40s, yeah. Um,
1: and she makes all these like terrible comments about like, you know, well, clearly Max's uh, you know, Mr. DeWinter's tastes have changed and he must be mad and I don't know what could he possibly see in you cuz you're nothing.
0: But you know what she says though, right? Uh, before that, she's like, "Why why am I Oh no, she says, "Um, goodbye my dear. I wish you the best of luck." I think it's one of those like uh, opposite day curses where she (laughs) wishes her nothing but insanity and madness. Yeah. Because what we get for the rest of the movie is poor Joan Fontaine going crazy. Yeah. Um, Well, but she's
1: going crazy for exactly that same problem, right? Like exactly the whole the whole. I mean, we're, we're getting into it, but the whole problem of the movie and. And what Rebecca actually is and her whole presence Mm -hmm. is all tied to um, Joan Fontaine's character's inability to believe that anyone could actually like her. Or that she is actually worth anything. And constantly measuring herself against this imaginary person who then, like a ghost, haunts the rest of the picture in this daunting, like... Unbelievably oppressive way, right? Um, um, which we'll get into. And it. she starts that. Yeah. It starts in that little moment.
0: Yeah. Um. In that time, though, she does meet Max De Winter. Yeah. Um. They kind of start a whirlwind romance where, uh, he's the most distant lover uh, yeah. in, in terms of just like a, a, a mental and uh, ethereal presence. Yeah. Like in, he has
1: no, in in great uh, Hitchcockian uh, yeah. ways, like he. Takes her, drives her around to pretty places, reminds her that she's stupid, tells her what they should do, and then takes her back and tells her, oh, you're great. Yeah. Uh, once, and you're ag- like, once, wait.
0: once again, <laughs> Hitchcock has a lot of problems in his stories. And-, and
1: it's not even just her. Like, who knows? The book is probably somewhat similar. Some of it is is of the time and yeah. also the people they're emulating. And, like, none of it's good. It's just one of those things that when you watch it today, when he calls her stupid, you're like, wait, what?
0: And it happens Way too often. Yeah. Sometimes. And so it, And it
1: happens like in at the same time that he could be like um you know, punching her chin or like being being really cutesy, he's like, Oh, you're yeah, just w- such a little it, idiot. And, and we're like, not Wait, ta-
0: what? And we're not talking like punch her in the chin, no, like no, sucker I mean, on the jaw. No, I it's mean like, like that, Casablanca
1: like, yeah, like here's looking yeah, at you. Yeah, no, here's kid. looking at you, idiot. Which
0: by <laughs> first of all, that's not the line in Casablanca. I here's know. looking at you, you idiot. <laughs> um second of all, he doesn't punch her chin yeah as you said it in Casablanca he holds her chin and goes no nah, no nah. here's looking at you kid." yeah you're right and, then, was, he sh- sh- was, and, then, and then he shoots Conrad Veidt and the whole movie is awesome I always
1: remember it as like a kind yeah. k- a kind uh, <laughs> like <laughs> rubbing of his fist against her chin yeah I guess you're right it's more of a grip yeah exactly either way you know what I'm saying he I, yeah uh max 40s love max <laughs> yes <laughs> max tends to love her while reminding her she's stupid. Exactly. Um, so um, it's a cutesy stupid she yeah, has. Yeah,
0: it's 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 a problem. But yeah. anyway, um, but the bottom line is she loves him. So I guess we're going on this journey. Yeah. So, um, uh, and there's a, and there's actually some really um, interesting use of the Hitchcock uses a lot of driving and uh, shots in his films, and therefore there's also the rear projection stuff. And mm-hmm. I actually think that this is one of the one of the top rear projection driving scenes because of how much character information we're getting from both DeWinter and her. Mm. We're getting a lot of her insecurity and a lot of his isolated and distant nature yeah. and how that's going to interact. Like,
1: and, and I do want to say before we get too far and I forget just to vindicate him some Max I actually really love their relationship and the romance of the movie. Once, you know, the actual story, mm-hmm. because the, the, um, the paranoia of the film, the first time you watch it and her, you know, lack of self-confidence is what causes you to actually, and her to misinterpret what Max is trying to do. He actually loves her for not fitting into society and, and being, and, and, being a little bit ignorant to all these things and, and being more simple because she's so different than what he's afraid of. Right. Um, so he loves all those things about her, but the whole point of, like, the purpose of the film is she's insecure about those things. Mm. So your first watch, you're like, Max is kind of a dick. And then when you watch it, t- you know, after that, yes, he calls her an idiot and stuff like that, but he actually genuinely cares about her and loves that she's different, and that's why he's drawn to her. And so it's I think it's actually a good romance the second or third time you watch it, yeah. Um, um, so just in defensive max. I
0: I I don't disagree with you. I my my feeling on it is that it has similar issues to the end of suspicion, which comes after this, where the the deviousness of Cary Grant and suspicion is immediately wrapped up in a five minute. Oh, it was just it was it's not what you think it was. It was actually this. Yeah. Um, in Rebecca, it's it's better written to explain away his foibles. Sure. I don't think th- I, I I've never really thought it makes him like a very um likable fella.
1: Yeah, he's not a great husband. No. You he's, know, he's not good at communicating. Yeah. It, but I do believe he loves her.
0: I, I I get that at the very least from the dialogue. You're right. Um yeah, so um but like again, you know, like it, it is also there is a context thing to go on in there. But yeah. Anyway, though, um, because we'll get to that when the reveal comes up. But so anyway, um, uh, (laughs) this is Van Hopper's going to uh, uh, take uh, I away from Max. And so Max says, well, let's get married. Uh, And then that's when Hopper puts the gypsy curse on them because (laughs) they get married very instantly. They get their marriage certificate dropped off the roof uh, or in the second level. uh, And she gets a bunch of flowers thrown in her face. He doesn't... Uh, she and she lays in him like a pillow. Like if these are like these must be comfy flowers.
1: <laughs> he uh he's very he's very particular that it not be a big wedding or a big a big to do. We don't want a lot of rumor or talk.
0: Yeah. Well, mm. I think it's I think it's mainly because uh he doesn't want Mrs. Edith Van Hopper eating all the food. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's right, because or,
1: she she like volunteers like well. You know, I've been employing this woman for the summer, so clearly I'm like her mom and should walk her down the aisle and shit. And you're like, what the
0: fuck is wrong with you, woman? And you have to stop Mrs. Edith Van Hopper and go, no, lady, we're good. No one likes you. Yeah, sorry, ma'am, ma'am, I'm sure your daughter loves you and she needs you. It's like a... But uh, this gal, don't. (laughs) It's it's
1: the way I treat my dog when he's, like, eating something he's not supposed to, (laughs) where you just want to look at her and go, no one loves you. Today, no one loves you, lady. Yeah. But she's great. I actually do love her. She's by, amazing.
0: By, by the way, Mrs. Edith Van Hopper, played by Florence Bates, um, a, uh, a character actress who often played grand dame characters. Um uh she died in 1954 so um you know had a long career yeah um but so anyway they get married they move to Mandalay. the moment they drive up to mandorlay it's raining so doom is ahead it's a beautiful um, house though it huge, is a huge house uh which is actually a miniature okay uh, and right. the um the shot of the house uh the, the 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 wide shot of the house is a miniature and the little car is just a little miniature little car driving car. Man, which if you look at it on the Criterion Blu-ray I'm sure you'll see that there's no people in there oh yeah you can tell on the Blu-ray yeah. that yeah. it is so not... it's 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 an elegant version of what it looks like when we play with Matchbox cars or Hot yeah. Wheels <laughs> um, yeah. uh but none of us had a Mandalay playset yeah <laughs> which. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> and you could have a little little figurine that closes the window in the West mm-hmm. Wing. Yeah, which we'll talk about that because that's a puppet. Oh. <coughs> um, but wow, so they get it to Mandalay. Cool. <coughs> Excuse me. I am sorry. No, you're um, good. We get to Mandalay. They open up the doors. The whole staff is there to greet her. In one shot, cuts back to Joan Fontaine and uh, Lawrence Olivier walking in. And then it cuts back to the shot of the staff, and in like a ghost walks in Judith Anderson. When she wasn't established in that first space, mm-hmm. there's a reason for that. Is that even though she hadn't been established in the previous shot, she Hitchcock wanted her to kind of appear in into the shot as if though she shouldn't belong. Yeah, She's, uh,
1: she shows up like a ghost a lot.
0: Exactly, and and she moves like a ghost too. Judith Anderson yeah. is wonderful in this film. She like is. It, it is one of the scariest fucking villains in a movie that you will Hench- ever henchman. see. Henchman. Henchman, yes, sorry, Henchman. Um, uh, and then, so, she meets everybody. She's trying to get acclimated to uh, Mandalay Society. Um, she meets Max's sister and her husband, played by Nigel Bruce, um, who is, um, uh, I want to make sure I get his name correct here, um, uh, Major Giles Lacey. Oh, yeah, he's Beatrice, Beatrice's husband. Uh, I, I've talked about uh, Nigel Bruce before on the first episode. He was Dr. Watson in the Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson films of the 40s with Basil Rathbone. Oh. Uh, so he has a compunction for being bumbling and uh, rather kind of flippant um, or or in the case of Dr. Watson, kind of like aloof. I think you get all three in here because uh, he is. He is he has one of my favorite lines in the films is just like well uh he's basically trying to figure out what Rebecca likes to do or what she does. Like yeah. does she like riding? Does she like dancing? She's like, It's a good thing you don't like sailing. Uh oh <laughs> And I'm just like,
1: Oh Do you ride side saddle or stra- oh I forgot you don't ride horses? It was two seconds ago you said you don't like I'm horses, to, but I forgot it.
0: Because he's like, I'm just trying to figure out what you do. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say? You do. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Do, do you salsa? I don't know. I, I don't. Well, you must teach me then. <laughs> <laughs> he's really. He's, uh, so he's the gross. line before she meets him, he goes like, so um, uh, it's, it's only a matter of time before we meet that chorus girl he picked up in France. How, why would you say she's a chorus girl? Well, you met her in France. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense, right? Yeah. And then yeah. she just comes in and he's just like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> um, and so, um, but uh, anyway, so she's trying to get acclimated to everything. She meets with Mrs. Danvers um, throughout different scenes and already that, they're off to an icy start. Yeah, there's that
1: letters scene where she's like, this is where Rebecca would sit and or Mrs. DeWinter would sit and, and do her letters. Uh, you know, you can sit and do your letters. And I'm thinking, who's she going to send letters to? Who's who was Rebecca sending all these letters to?
0: Who's got time for letters? Well, well we will find out. Who <laughs> Rebecca would have been sending letters to because yes. it turns out there's a lot of letters she could have sent, mm-hmm. Um which, um, you know, they have a couple of different conversations about the diff- different parts of the house. Uh, in a scene before that they talk about like, well, you're here in the East Wing. He's never used the East Wing. Yes. Uh Mrs. DeWinter was in the West Wing. Because
1: that's where the that's where the, the poisoned rose is under glass.
0: <laughs> and only a kiss will break the spell. Yeah. Um uh Beauty and the Beast, Tails. Max is a beast. Yeah, exactly. Uh it, the only thing this movie is missing is Jerry Orbach as a talking candlestick. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh and um but so anyway, um and she shows her the outside of uh the old mr mrs de winter's door um and the camera does a really cool thing like the the camera hitchcock's camera is absolute throughout all this films everything is meant to kind of build on the suspense in the case of rebecca we're building on the mystery of rebecca who is rebecca who was the old mrs de winter and he does this really well although there is a shot when he's pushing in on mrs de winter rebecca's door um empty like just like after mrs danvers and i have walked away Mm -hmm. but in front of it is Jasper the dog and he's just kind of sitting there and I'm just like my Rift tracks brain went into my head and when it keeps pushing into there and the dogs there I go rut row (laughs) um, which is not inappropriate given what we're going to find out yeah Um, but there's a lot of move in on suspense. the Rebecca
1: got reincarnated as a dog. Oh my god,
0: that would have been amazing. Cujo, but Rebecca. The dog's been setting fires the whole time. Rebecca takes the form of a dog and fights D. Wallace in a car. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. And Stephen King probably wrote that. I'm fairly <laughs> sure he wrote that. Uh he writes everything. But anyway, so um and there's a lot of use with the camera and also setting up different shots to amplify the suspense of Rebecca. Um Many times whenever we talk about Rebecca in any way, shape, or form, there is a dramatic music cue and then a camera move or a lighting move. Like when Beatrice, uh, Max's sister, sang like he loved Rebecca, and then that was intentionally shot separately. So they shot Beatrice first and then Joan Fontaine and sliced it together just so they could get the shot of Beatrice losing light and Joan Fontaine gaining light. Hmm. So it's a special effect in camera. Cool. The visual effects of Rebecca are unsung. There's a whole featurette on the Criterion Blu-ray that you can look at that points out with um, I can't remember his name, but he's a he's a visual effects guy who actually worked on Search for Spock. Oh, fun! And he actually mentions Judith Anderson in hmm. the whole thing. That's that's why I made that joke at the beginning. That and I'm a dork. I love
1: um, the I love the one where they're. Uh, They're watching their own videos of, like, when they were having fun a week and a half earlier. Mm -hmm. And then, like, she asks a question, and he turns the projector off, and then it just goes into, like... Hard spotlight on their eyes, and which as he's just like I'm an evil bastard,
0: and you're like whoa, right? Which from a certain light, I'm like Orson Welles. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh wait, no, wrong movie, wrong movie. He's he's not a newspaper magnate. <laughs> There's some um, definite noir in there. They're yeah. both in big houses, that I know. <laughs> um, but uh, um, and then also like scenes with the lawyer or the or the um, the manager the of the estate. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, the when he was like, what was Rebecca like, and he goes. She was the most lovely woman I'd ever known. And then it, the camera kind of pulls back. We don't need to know anything further than that. We don't need to know the specifics just yet. We just... Except we, that he's full of shit. He's communicating via the camera that we know that, at the very least, Rebecca held something over these people. Yeah. Whether it was sway, charm, or, other nef- or, or something nefarious. Mm-hmm. We know that's how he's communicating the mystery while keeping it a mystery. Yeah. And that...
1: And that she's never going to measure it. Yeah, so.
0: and that inherently is what Hitchcock's able to bring to the table to make this not just an adaptation of a book that millions of people read at the time. Um, it's also what makes it rewatchable to this day, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, re, um, uh, Joan Fontaine and Max go t- through a tour of uh, the grounds. Uh, they stumble across a beach house um, or a, near the ocean. Uh, um, an ocean house. Of, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's, yeah. it's, it's basically like a dock house. Or it's a dock yeah. house. Yeah. Uh, Max doesn't want to go down to that area, but uh, fervently. Yeah, but um, the second Mrs. DeWinter Winter says, "Yeah, sure. Well, let's let's go." And he goes, uh, "I guess so." She's chasing the dog. Cause the dog's Chases freaking Jasper, out. Jasper, and then they run into um, one of like the he's a um, what's his name? Oh yeah the the beach hermit. The beach hermit of Mandalay. <laughs> Is that how he's credited? Ben the Ben, beach her- ben the beach hermit. <laughs> Played by Leonard Carey, and he's a how many times
1: has Matthew McConaughey played Ben the Beach Hermit?
0: Oh, oh, Moon <laughs> from Beach Bum. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um. Uh. You, you know what? I think if they remake Rebecca, uh, they are Matthew McConaughey. Actually, yes. No.
1: Next week, next year's Rebecca remake with Lily James needs to have uh, <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey as the has Ben the Beach Hermit. <laughs> Oh my god. That's really
0: good. Who's playing Who's playing Max De Winter in that remake? I haven't even looked at well, Army Hammer. Army Hammer? Ooh, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. It's not Laurence Olivier, but it's good. No, yeah. Um I, I like it. Yeah, I do too. Um I mean, it was better than my choice Adam Sandler. So <laughs> 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 That is not true. I would not suggest that whatsoever. Yeah. Um I think Judith Anderson should rise from the grave and play Mrs. Danvers again, but oh cause, yeah. Cuz I don't think you can top that. No. Um but so anyway, she meets Ben the Hermit. Ben the Hermit's like, I didn't see nothing. She's not coming back. And so already more stuff about Rebecca. Um, The second Mrs. DeWinter is trying further to acclimate herself to the house. And Mrs. Danvers... She
1: wants so bad to be loved.
0: She does. So much so that she does finally agree to see uh Rebecca's room with a guided tour by the creepy Mrs. Danvers. Well she
1: f- doesn't no she she sees somebody in the window and she yes, she, she, says, oh, she she actually she, creeps in first and, yes, and she, Danvers catches her like a ghost.
0: Exactly. No so yeah so I'm wrong. Yes. Yeah, so cuz she sees that shot of Mrs. Danvers closing the doors in the west wing which that's what I was alluding to earlier. that's a puppet because yeah. It wouldn't register properly if they had used from that distance a sure, human. Yeah, yeah. So um and it's also Funny. it's also kinda creepy because it's a puppet because it's kinda stilted. Because it moves weird, yeah. It's almost like it's a ghost. Yes. Um yeah. Yeah. which yeah, there, at that
1: point the first time you're watching it, that's kinda what you think. Now, let me ask um, you a
0: question. There are ghosts in that house. Who are you gonna call?
1: Um The fire department.
0: Oh, okay. Right, good. Just wanted to make sure. <laughs> I mean I think Jason Reitman has a different idea but anyway yeah. um so anyway she gets a guided tour of uh this of Rebecca De Winter's uh room uh which is
1: and her lingerie yeah
0: made made well, actually, by no. nuns in Naples yeah. and she actually
1: she refers to it oh, oh would you like to see her underwear here let, let me open these weird slidey drawers full of underwear. The underwear is all made by nuns in Naples. And you're like,
0: "What? Those the? slidey drawers are cool, though. Yeah. I and want that, those."
1: That's when you get this sort of weird uh, for my boxers <laughs> pseudo sexual tension between <laughs> mm-hmm. Danvers and Rebecca. Yeah, um, yeah. There is a that, there
0: there is an underlying subtext going on throughout the film, which this is not the first time Hitchcock touches on a homosexual or. Um, LBGTQ subtext. Yeah. Now, um, I don't know if it's uh, presented in the most elegant of lights, but it is the 1940s, so it's just kind yeah, of there. It's one
1: of those things you have to take from its time. I, I think you you assume. I think it's safe to assume
0: that she was obsessed best. with him or uh, with her. Sorry. Oh yeah.
1: Well, I'm, I mean, from a, just from a writing perspective, like you're gonna assume that everyone involved. Doesn't have the best understanding of that, and that you know um having we used to be very familiar with the pseudo homosexual villain uh so it's not
0: yeah no unusual, yeah i mean you know, i mean we can
1: it, we can assume the worst here yeah uh as far as intentions are concerned is my point um but that's where yeah, we start yeah, to exactly. get this idea that like she was somewhat obsessed with Rebecca.
0: Right. And it's, and it, and again, these are themes that Hitchcock has dealt with in other films, whether it's North by Northwest or rope and stuff like that. These are films that he has touched into this issue. This in particular though, is interesting because of how it plays into the whole ghost story element of everything. Yes. I do feel that if we're talking about Rebecca as a ghost story or a, I'm not going to call it a horror film, Although you could, uh, it,
1: yeah, I think the tropes are definitely there.
0: Yeah, it's it's there. I well, no, I, I, okay. So anyway, if we call Rebecca a horror film, a ghost story, and stuff like that, but I mean, if you look on it in a shelf, it's categorized as drama because that's sure. how someone wants to sell it. Through the ghost story element of it, it's it lays into the theory that I presented at the top of the show that you agree with, which is that Mrs. Danvers is one of the best henchmen to a ghost ever. Yeah. Or, or at it, least the idea of something. It
1: presents... It, it allows you as the viewer the first time you watch it to imagine a couple different scenarios. You can imagine that there's actually a ghost. You can imagine that there's not a ghost, but in a Scooby-Doo Mystery Team-style way, <laughs> there is this lady who is using the idea of a ghost to taunt this woman. And then the third version is actually that there is no ghost or conspiracy... And actually just that Mrs. DeWinter, the new Mrs. DeWinter, is uh, unable to reconcile reality with her own view of herself. Right. Um, and I think it's a combination of the last two yeah. is reality, right? I don't think that Danvers... I actually think that Danvers doesn't like her, but I don't think she has like negative intentions towards her mm. until... Uh, even the dress sequence is uh, is... I'm not entirely convinced that she's trying to be mean there. Um, it's almost that, that sequence, which is part of what comes up next is, is her almost trying to resurrect her into some degree as well. You know, Danvers doesn't go super evil till the end. Yeah. You know,
0: I think that in that moment, I, I think there's a level of taunting, but I definitely, it's it's almost like, it's like Danvers is trying to like figure I out or figure the the new wife out. Right. Because even she feels unsure because, like, up till now, like, the new wife has been lying about breaking a piece of china and, quote-unquote, bumbling around the house from her point of view, which is inexcusable when the former Mrs. DeWinter was, uh, in everyone else's mind, an elegant lady, lovely woman, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, But, um, which, by the way, really quickly, Scooby-Doo Mystery at Manderley. That's the next direct to Scooby-Doo <laughs> movie. Like, uh... Zoik Scoob. We've got to go solve the mystery of the De Winters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Roger R- <laughs> Um, That was dumb. Anyway, moving on. Um,
1: I want to see Scooby-Doo fall in love with Lawrence Olivier.
0: Oh, my God. Is <ini-dpai-d Arabic> Scooby-Doo in a dress? Because he's got a fool uh, Lawrence Olivier in this one. All buttoned up right to his neck, and he's like, oh.
1: Yeah. You like me? Yeah. And, but I'm then- a d- 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 dog.
0: But then he finds out. But then, like, but then they get into a fight, and then they run through the same background yes. to a nineteen sixties groove song. Yeah, that that's that's a wonderful idea, and I think Warner Brothers should contact us immediately.
1: I think that's what the Lily James movie is actually. <laughs> I think Army Hammer plays the voice of. Did James
0: Gunn write it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is
1: James Gunn's Rebecca. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean I, I mean I loved Guardians of the There's Galaxy Vol uh, 2. Uh, so. ben,
1: ben Wheatley, I think it is. Yeah,
0: I love super I love all of James Gunn's films. Uh, Slither's great, so I know that his Rebecca will be wonderful. Yeah. James Gunn's Rebecca in theaters never um unfortunately. So anyway though she goes into the correspondence room, calls Mrs. Danvers in and says, "Look, bitch, I'm the new Mrs. De Winter." <laughs> Hell yeah, I love that scene. Um that is one of my favorite It's like I am Mrs. De Winter now. Yes. And I, and there's this look on Joan Fontaine's face which is just like, "Oh fuck." Yeah. Like <laughs> like um, uh, if I mean if you're in a theater in the 40s you go, "Oh damn." Yeah. But they didn't say she, "Oh damn" like that. It's
1: so. it's a moment where she really puts her foot down and like uh, and if if not for the next big event in the film, I think it would have been like you you kind of feel like that character has turned there and she's found some of her confidence and like that could have been the arc of the film until the uh, the big th- sunken shoe drops right so um
0: and you know again this is this is it's it's a lot of it's a lot more agency from her character. Than we've seen throughout the film in terms of like making a decision on her own, because up until then it has been about while, while we are empathetically and sympathetically in her shoes, her trying to figure out how to conform to this lifestyle and kind of figure it out. In this one, she proclaims an identity. What's more, she says to max, Hey, I want to throw a costume ball like they did in the old days. Uh, And he goes, whatever, put that silly idea in your head. Um, Have you been talking to my sister? So, like again, right. some of that classic romantic dialogue. <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, that, I, I love you. You're so dumb. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like it. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, it's a problem. Y- you know. You know,
1: I'm not disagreeing that it's a problem.
0: We say the big sick is one of the best rom coms in years. I think it's <laughs> Rebecca. Um, <laughs> um, but so um, they're gonna do a costume ball, uh, and. Uh, she asks, who are you going to go as? And he goes, I don't. That's the privilege of me being the host of the house. And I'm like, no. I want to see Laurence Olivier in a kangaroo costume. No, I love it. That's Because that's my answer. <laughs> that's your... Oh, so you won't do a costume for Halloween? Fuck or like, no. Really?
1: I'm, yeah, I'm an adult. I don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. Like, uh, I am 31, almost two years old. I get to make my own decisions. You,
0: you are essentially like uh, Ed Wood and Bella Lugosi sitting in their house on Halloween and when a trick-or-treater comes up, you just find a way to take your teeth out.
1: No, I'll give kids candy. Why do you think I had a kid? I dress her up now so that that way everyone <laughs> pays attention to her and doesn't give a shit about the fact that I'm wearing a T-shirt.
0: Hey, what does the T-shirt say? It says, I don't want to pee. It says, I was
1: on the top of the stack.
0: <laughs> um. But so anyway, she just she decides, I'm going to decide to co- design a costume for myself. Yeah. Uh, And it'll be a big surprise. And she's a she's a we didn't mention it earlier, but she is like she does sketches. She's an artist. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. The sketches is real bad in the movie. Yeah, which but I mean, like, well, fine. yeah.
0: The sketch of Max De Winter <laughs> yeah. is is very much a and cartoon he's like, drawing. Oh,
1: you're so bad at things. Look how big my nose is. Oh, it's so cute how bad at things you are. Yeah,
0: just pay, pay, pay attention to the distance because i like, you I'm don't not need work to work. Drawing. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, um, and um, so. She's having a hard time figuring out a costume idea. Mrs. Danvers walks in with her thrown-away sketches like a creepazoid and says, like, hey, I, I found these drawings. Or, or was it Robert or one of the other people found these drawings yeah. thrown away? Did you intend to throw them away? No. Or yes, I did because I'm trying to figure out a costume. And she goes, well, why don't you check out one of the paintings in the hallway? Um, they may give you some ideas. He, She points out to Ms., the second Mrs. DeWinter – the painting of an old ancestor of Max's, um, Caroline DeWinter. Winter. I think so. Uh, mm-hmm. Who has the um, who has this kind of like white Big simple f- dress gown, floofy
1: leftover from um, shit? What's the?
0: <laughs> uh, it's like Bo Peep's outfit before she became a badass in Toy Story Four.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh it's leftover costumes from Gun with the Wind.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. It is David O. Selznick on amphetamines going like, fuck it, recycle it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, But so anyway, she decides, hey, I'm going to do that costume. Uh, and then they hold their masquerade ball. Um, the manager of the state comes as a professor. Um, Giles comes as a strong man and gets a funny little inflatable weight. Uh, and his wife, Beatrice, who's Max's sister, comes in like a. Like a night outfit of some kind. It's almost like she gave up on a night costume, um, or some kind of like gypsy costume, or something like that. It's really weird. Yeah. Um, but nobody else knows what she's gonna do. She descends down the stairs. She says, "Hello, Mr. Dewinter." Max turns around and goes, "What the fuck are you wearing?" <laughs> it is. It's a very. It's a vicious response. And then Hitchcock went, ca, ca, uh, uh, "Lawrence, come here. I think you should probably say." Go upstairs and put that away. We can't use the word fuck. Thank yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now action. Um uh the uh but so anyway, she goes upstairs, confronts Mrs. Danvers, and then Mrs. Danvers does her blo- her Bond plot villain reveal. <laughs> um, where she says, like, I've hated you from the moment you walked in here. You'll, you'll never be good y- enough. You'll never be good enough for her. You're just an imposter, you're just a little fool. All the things, essentially, that Mrs. Van Hopper was saying to her Mm -hmm. in nicer ways. Yeah. So maybe Mrs. Van Hopper didn't put a curse on him. I don't know. Uh, But anyway, and then she throws herself on the bed because she's so sad. And Mrs. Danvers opens up a window that is steeped in fog outside Mm -hmm. and says, like, why don't you come over to the window for some air? Why don't you just go away from Manderley? Get away from it all. Yeah. Or better yet, better enough just to walk off this ledge, er, walk off right now. Walk off this window. Look at it. Look down there. It's so easy. And the way he shoots it, because the fog's rolling in, you can kind of make out the distance, but not that much. Yeah. So already, like, he's kind of – Hitchcock's kind of playing with your perception a little bit. But he's also framing them in such a way that, like, it's it's this very eerie, atmospheric horror that really – I think one of the reasons why Judith Anderson is so scary in the movie is because we feel terrified for Joan Fontaine mm. because we believe that Joan Fontaine is afraid of her. Yeah. That's what makes her creepy. I've been I talked about it on the psycho episode but
1: and you don't quite know what she's capable of either, right? It, like in that scene you're not sure how crazy Danvers is and whether or not like would would she just push her? Yeah. Like what is her What is her motivation here? Especially because she can't get whatever it is she wants, right? If what she wants is she wants Rebecca back, Mm -hmm. like, you can't get that. So you're a complete wild card.
0: Exactly. And she's, uh, very much, um, she, she's, I don't want to say she's holding back anything, but like, she's like, she's very reserved. She's very curt. Mm Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but her politeness is her secret weapon of mm. villainy because she's she's basically doing everything that the that the boss tells her to do but she's twisting yeah. it in the most manipulative fashion right right which again does tie into hitchcock writing or or being attracted to characters who are female that do the manipulation twisty thing um, which again is an issue in a lot of films. In yeah. this particular film though, I think it's essential to the growth of Joan Fontaine's character. Yeah. Um is it great uh, from a from a modern perspective? Not really, but take it on its terms and you'll enjoy it.
1: But also because she's a villain, it's not like she's Yeah, not... she she is. She's not and, and she's not who we're case, rooting for her. maybe maybe because she's not doing it to a man it doesn't feel like a statement about women and more a character decision right yeah like it's, a, it's, exactly it's actually right. a genuine piece of her character and not like and not a sign of a of a worse um you know problem with the people making the film right
0: agreed so. yeah um uh and again you know there is a problem with the person making it but yeah, yeah, but, but, but that's yeah. but that's neither here nor there for this particular conversation yeah um. Anyway, so but just as she's about to, uh, pretty much contemplate jumping off that fucker, yeah. Um. There's a big shot of a of a flare gun in the sky through the fog. You see it. Uh. There's a boat that's been uh found, or there's a there's a boat down. So they've yes. got to help. Uh, so that everybody from the party rushes out to the sea to help. And amidst all that chaos. A boat is found at the bottom of the ocean.
1: Yes.
0: And in that boat is a body that yes. we shouldn't be finding on the Because deck. because that boat was the late Mrs. DeWinter's boat, and Rebecca's. the body in there is Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's, uh From they, David O'Selsteck. <laughs> they had told us
1: they had told us earlier on, one of the characters tells us that like the body of Rebecca when Rebecca's body was originally found that Max had identified it. <laughs> so we immediately know there's some trouble here and that that Max has not told the whole story because, you know, he he said that the body they found was her. Yeah. So clearly
0: he's lying. Yeah, exactly. So did, did he sh- murder her? D- did 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 Laurence Olivier, played by Kenneth Brana, murder an invisible woman named Rebecca?
1: Did she suddenly get too smart and he was like, I can't love you? <laughs>
0: I mean, like, this is the 1940s. Men actually, did not like smart women. Actually, maybe kind of, but we'll get there. Well, well, anyway, we will get there. Um, actually, we're going to get there literally Yeah, that's right kind of now. now, yeah. Yeah, it's literally right now. So uh, uh, Joan Fontaine, the second Mrs. De Winter, or I, uh, goes into um, the, the, uh, the dock house that we talked about earlier. Yes. Um, Max is sitting in there. She apologizes for the costume. Max goes, oh, oh, that thing? Oh, yeah, I, for- I forgot about that. Uh, I'm thinking about that boat that's out on the ocean. Yeah, and, and I can't be your body, problems, lady. And that, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not worried about your dress right now. So um, I think I might have committed murder.
1: <laughs> this scene is a tooth pulling, mind numbingly long exposition scene mm-hmm. that is brilliant and awesome because and so entertaining and the best. Ghost part of the movie for my money, because of the way he shoots it. Yeah, so um,
0: part of it does attribute to Lawrence Olivier is a great actor. Yes, uh, yeah, he, he does a, a wonderful job, yeah. actor. Joe Fontaine also a great actress. So she is playing off of. She's him very good at sitting and saying what. Well, no, no you're, I'm, you're, I'm, just I'm just kidding. I, I'm, I'm, I kidding, love I'm you. kidding. I'm like, kidding. I'm like, kidding. Well, actually, like the whole when she when he does the moment of like I didn't love Rebecca. I hated her. Oh yeah. And she just reacts like, it does seem melodramatic from a modern lens. However, yeah. she's processing grief. One, the way you process grief in the forties, which was to take a few steps back and look terrified and maybe go, Oh yeah. You know, I mean like, yeah, I mean, you know, when people saw the end of Casablanca and saw that Rick didn't get the girl at the end, they took a few steps back and went, Oh, <laughs> so, um, but, um, uh, She's responding off. She's playing off of him really well. Yeah. But as you're talking about, this is a thing that Hitchcock does to uh, tell the story of Rebecca. Almost through pure cinema terms. Our listeners will be familiar. Pure cinema is trying to use the camera to tell the story. <coughs> trying to use the camera to tell the story with as little words or in the case of silent films dialogue cards as possible unfortunately it is not possible to do that entirely without Max describing it but you could turn off the sound in that moment and kind of get a sense of Rebecca as a character just in that moment because you kind of you're following her movements right now that's the key but on a but on a realistic level but she's not there yeah but on a realistic level it's a creative way of getting around doing a flashback where I was, you have to look at rebecca as a person yeah i was would and make her thing. a person at all right like cuz exactly. she's,
1: she's not even cast in the film what's what i was going to describe the scene as basically a flashback filmed in the present where he's going to describe what's happening and this conversation they're having in the, that they had in this room and this argument that they had and the camera's going to follow where they were at during that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so the other characters are going to come in and out of the frame based on whether or not the original argument was had where they are. But the camera doesn't care about the characters today. Mm-hmm. The camera cares about the characters a year ago, two years ago, whenever this was. Right. Um,
0: um, and this is also, like, again, it's 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 a way to keep Rebecca as a presence in the film. Yes. Um, so it's revealed that Max... Um, has not been well. We haven't even talked about who Rebecca say, is. I was
1: gonna say it's actually this is the only shot of the movie where the camera follows Rebecca and Rebecca remains never in the film.
0: Yep. Yeah. So, but it turns out that Rebecca DeWinter, when she married Max, was marrying him for well, one for his money and influence and station, but had no intention of Being holding to wife. holding yeah. to marital vows. She was gonna play the part so that she could fool around behind his back mm-hmm. or in this case right in front of him. <laughs> yeah. Um I I I tr- I don't know how to describe what you classify that as uh, in the in the period like she, like there's like she, I guess like party girl or something like that. Yeah, it's
1: or, a it's a weird um it's a mel- melodramatic character who probably can't actually exist. Yeah. Um because the whole scene is a um a convenient release of Max. Yeah. Like that scene, her character is made almost cartoonishly evil. It's why you couldn't put her in the movie, because if you actually shot that scene as a flashback where she's like, <laughs> I've I've spent months making you fall in love with me and hiding the fact that I have like the most evil, sinister plans for you ever. I didn't tell you
0: I was fucking my cousin, but right. here we are. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> Which this is true, and this is a scene we need to talk bo- about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has a favorite cousin played by a <laughs> very, um, oh god, what's his name? Uh, but Maybe he, like, he has the a car cover- salesman. Yeah, yeah, like a car salesman of of a British era. Uh, George Sanders. Yeah. Yeah. She has her first cousin played by George Sanders. Um, and he is—he's a Rebecca, car salesman. Yeah, yeah. works Rebecca's first cousin and lover, and car salesman. Yes. Um, and they're having affairs. Uh, Rebecca even seduced the financial manager at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to which Max says, "Poor, uh, poor him." Yeah, you know, and um, uh, and she uh implies that she got pregnant to Max. Uh, and that yes. won't it be funny that the heir to the De Winter throne will, will not be a De winter, yeah? Uh, and you're such a fool, blah blah blah. Yeah. And so he strikes her maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh. laugh. Yeah, Chris Cooper. Yeah. And then and then Max and uh, and then Rebecca and Chris Cooper went off to stop the Muppets from having their theater back. Um. Like I said, Jason Siegel's Muppet movie is pretty amazing when you think about it through that lens. Um. So um. But he hits her. And she falls back and falls onto. She sort of falls through an open
1: door into, into some rope and some in, in, uh,
0: into sea-going equipment. Yes,
1: into <laughs> into some kind of equipment that we as as landlocked lubbers. Do not know what to call it, but there's like still there uh big metal things you could hit your head on. And well, die. that's
0: the anchor room. That's where you put yes. you used anchors. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah you know that. Yeah. You, you every house has an anchor room when you right. live on the east coast near a beach. Yes. Um, so she
1: falls onto a giant anchor. Yeah, and exactly. Or bursts like, her or, head open. Or
0: something of that nature, like and just. And one of the great lines, like, I, she, I was wondering why she was still smiling at me, and then I realized she was dead.
1: She she conveniently fell through a door onto some bullets and died. <laughs> um, again, a very convenient release for Max. But if we take everything he says at his word, she was a terrible person, and she died. So what's, so what's Max's problem? A tune killed his wife,
0: <laughs> dropped a and, piano on his head. <laughs> and at this
1: point, he's believing she died pregnant. Yes, exactly.
0: So that fuels his guilt and frustration mm. like everything's very convoluted and he keeps saying i knew rebecca would win in the end yeah so he goes to identify the body um they tell him like No, nah, everything's gonna be fine except we have to do an. Inf- uh, we have to do another um another hearing about it in order to clarify the issue yeah the, tent-
1: like the, the cops are kind of assuming that he just got the body wrong the first time. Yeah.
0: And at this point, Joan Fontaine and Max's relationship is a lot stronger because now she knows why he's been so distant. Yeah. Um, and so he goes to the hearing with uh, Joan Fontaine present. Yeah. Uh, there we hear testimony from uh, Matthew McConaughey as uh, the beach hermit. Yeah. Um, and he says, uh, you know, I didn't see nothing. He keeps basically saying the same thing. It's implied that he's a slower uh, fella. Yeah. Um, and um, they just say, like, well, th- he's not a really a witness. And um, uh, Rebecca's cousin. Um, uh, the car salesman. The car salesman um, objects and kind of questions the whole affair and corners Max. <laughs> I oh wait, no, well, Max goes on the stand first. Well,
1: yeah, first Max goes on the stand and he even though she tells him like, "Hey, you got to be careful not to lose your temper." Mm-hmm. He starts to lose his temper, she faints at a very convenient time, and they call a break, which leads to one of my favorite scenes where like um like so, so they go out to the car and they're going to eat their lunch in the car. They've got like this little picnic with some brandy and some legs of chicken, and the the car salesman guy pops his head in the window like some kind of um cartoon Disney villain usually played by either a badger or a wolf. Yeah. Like uh oh, like the um the, the bad guys from who frame Roger Rabbit, who are always the trying weasels? To shoot. Yeah. He's he basically shows like up like an animated weasel and pops his head in and starts talking about how just how smooth and cool he is and takes one of their chicken bones and gnaws on the chicken bone, throws it out the window, like I don't give a shit and then uh, Max shows back up and he's like, What the fuck are you doing here? I don't like you, you know I don't like you and he starts to say, like, well, I have this letter you might be interested in. Mm-hmm. And this letter happens to be dated that the day that Rebecca died, and it's from her, and the way it's written certainly doesn't sound like somebody who would have committed suicide, mm-hmm. which is, you know, currently how Max is going to get out because they, they all think that she committed suicide. Yeah. And he's like, I, I'd really like to talk to you about my ambitions to Live a comfortable life and never work again. Yeah. Uh. You know, basically saying like, "Hey, if you pay me enough money, I'll, I'll just like not tell them, and we can prevent like Rebecca died."
0: And then, and then, much like the Weasels, he says, "Keep this up, and uh, or I'll leave you and your laundry out to dry." <laughs> uh, I just like and that. Who framed Roger Rabbit is a secret Rebecca sequel. <laughs> it's
1: such a mustache twirly great scene. Like I just adore it. He's he's wonderful
0: in the film. George he's Sanders great. is great in the oh, film. Like it's just so it's that inflection the in that vocal inflection he's kind of using just because yeah. it's his natural accent but it's just it's the way he's using he's it.
1: the best at, at acting with a chicken bone
0: but, that and also <laughs> gracefully entering and exiting windows uh in yes. the first scene when we see him he hops over that thing like a kid of That's twelve, right. like or he like sh- like just a young kid like bursting through like a fa- like hopping over a fence elegantly yeah, like that, like because like as grown men we can't do that, but somehow George Sanders can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the deal he's with that? like?
1: Well, that's he's and very he's in a good, good at being in places when he does it. Yeah, he's very good at being in places he's not supposed to be and isn't wanted.
0: I know. Um, oh my god. Yeah. You know. So, Did you do you think he was at Watergate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but so anyway, um, so um, uh, Favel says, "I've got this letter." Sounds like Rebecca wasn't going to kill herself. They confront each other in a diner. The cop who's investigating takes Maxim, Favel, and they go to the doctor of Rebecca. Yeah.
1: Well, it's revealed that—so they go back in, and, and Max says, like, hey, this guy's trying to blackmail me, and then uh, the car salesman pulls in Danvers and is like, Danvers, did you think she was going to kill herself? Mm-hmm. And she's like, uh, no, but I don't know. I can't talk about this. And he finally convinces her, like, hey, she had a doctor's appointment here Because she had, like, a secret abortion doctor here in the city. Like, you know she was here to see this doctor. You know she was here that day because she told me, like, what, you know, tell them that you know. Um, Because she says, like, yeah, he, she had this doctor that she saw even before she was married that was her mystery, like, little, you know, scummy doctor. Um and, you know, they don't say that's what it was for, but you know that's what it was it's, for. It's the implication, yeah, which,
0: yeah. I mean, and we'll get to it here in a second after that reveal because yeah. this brings into a lot of the discussion about an issue of the time period that leads totally. to interesting things. But So yeah. anyway, it's revealed that Rebecca was not only not pregnant, but she was close to dying of cancer.
1: Yes, the doctor, the doctor. just when the salesman thinks he's got max in his clutches and max is like "Oh shit it's all gonna come down on my head mm-hmm. the doctor reveals like N- yeah she came here um but she wasn't pregnant she had terrible cancer and was gonna die in a few weeks and when i said you're gonna die in a few weeks she said much sooner than that doctor uh, <laughs> and then and- they
0: all looked up at the air and then you heard a big <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and all of the cops are like, "Well, all right, that sounds like suicide then." And even the salesman's like, "What the fuck? Like,
0: no." Which, by the way, that's a that's a ill ill named ska band in the '90s. This sounds like suicide. <laughs> sounds like suicide. Yeah. Um, uh, but so yeah, they say, "Well, case closed." Uh, I guess we'll go back to Mandalay. But <laughs> as this has all been happening, which okay, before we get to that, so M- Max's um escape route as a character in this film via the murder with it being an accident in yes. uh in the film is one of those things that the era that you have to change in order to make the character more likable on uh, in any decade in particular here though the Hayes code said it would have violated their rules if he as a character was co- committing intentional murder, and then gets away with it at the end. Gotcha. And so that is why you make those changes.
1: Because in the in the book, does he intentionally murder?
0: I believe so. Yeah. Gotcha. It's like it's it's all intentional. Um, I have not read the book either, like yeah. you. So, um, and I, I know I I know out there in Radio Land I am an idiot, but um, but I will say that it it lends a lot to stuff Hitchcock's had to put up with in terms of changing content because. Yeah. He had to change Suspicion in a very similar manner uh, for RKO. But unlike Rebecca, you don't have 30 more minutes of plot after that kind of reveal and twist and change. In Suspicion, it's very much... The last minute, and Carrie Grant goes, "No, nah, nah, baby, this is what happened. What are you fucking nuts?" And then, um, I, I like the idea of Cary Grant cursing, um, because <laughs> it kind of pokes a hole in, <laughs> in Ryan's like hero worship. <laughs> um, but um, uh, but so anyway, it and that's one of those things that I guess I'd wonder deep down if Selznick pushed that there because to appease the censors, because it seems like he would have been a guy who was both successful enough and drugged up enough to just say, fuck it and do it because this is the guy who allowed the word damn on screen oh. and then pushed it through the censor, so, through by nook and by crook. Um, and I also, I, and, cause I don't feel Eve that Hitchcock liked the change or appreciated it. But at this point, Hitchcock is also frustrated because this is no longer a Hitchcock film. This is, a David O. Selznick film with Alfred Hitchcock directing it,
1: and I think the movie would have been very different. I think you you kind of have to take him at his word mm-hmm. if if you believe that he did it on purpose. Um, I think the end of the movie has to be a much more graduate style ending where she ends up with this guy, and and it's tainted in a way that in the current version it's not right. Like the current version in the end. Sure, Mandalay isn't there, but like their relationship, they're able to theoretically love each other in an honest way moving forward because there's no secrets anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas if he actually killed her, like you would need to really vilify Rebecca better than they do in order to justify it. Right? She would have she'd have to like really be looking to ruin his
0: life in a way that's
1: more than just like you know.
0: Okay, so um, it was to, it was uh, um. <clears throat> um at cells uh this is um it was selznick who wanted it um to be faithful yeah but to comply with the production code they did have to change it in the novel maxim shoots rebecca and in the uh in the novel in the film he only thinks of killing her and then pushes her and stuff um uh uh and uh and like we say the incurable cancer and not the pregnancy and um so, therefore, it's declared a suicide, not a murder. So, therefore, he's in the clear. Right. Um, even though he's still... Re- What's interesting is that the character still retains a dark sensibility to him because he he, he would have been close to doing it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we look at in terms of, like... And in I dark getting characters dark tension dark intentions.
1: It's one of those things that like when they do do the remake, you're gonna have to be very careful on how you they talk in the film a lot about him being like this traditional man who would never be able to stomach like his wife cheating on her the way like to the extent that like he might kill her just because he cheated on she cheated on him. Mm-hmm. um like you'd you you'd have to find a way to really either sell that time period or again, like I said, vilify her in a different way that makes it more pressing because otherwise a modern audience w- watches that and goes like, h- why doesn't he just throw her ass out of the house and tell everybody, Hey, she's been cheating on me. And if you don't believe me, go talk to all your husbands. Like, <laughs> you know, like in a modern context, you know, like you just see so many ways yeah. where you could have gotten out of this without killing the person. Yeah. And, and, and so you'd, if- you'd need to either make that, make that context of the time period and and the expectations at the time and what you didn't, didn't do like the idea that like, no divorcing your wife way worse than secretly murdering her. Well, and
0: and again, this is a time period where divorce is a big old no, no. I mean, like, I mean, for gosh sakes, that's the reason Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn don't marry guys. is because Tracy stayed faithful to his wife. Yeah. Um, But, um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, because, like, yeah, like I say, it's either that or make Rebecca a sci-fi remake and just set it in space where the rules don't apply anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, but anyway, so as Max is being cleared, though, um, uh, uh, Joan Fontaine's just left alone with Crazy Lady in the house. Yeah, they um, both go
1: back. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Oh, and, uh, she goes like uh, alone. That's the yes, thing. She goes she back goes, alone. I mean, well, well the stuff Because she fainted. There. Yeah. She fainted, so he sends her back. To the house, yeah, and then, uh, unbeknownst to either of them, car sales guy calls Danvers and is like, "Yo, dog, did you know? Turns out she wasn't pregnant. She had terrible cancer. Oops, she killed herself." Um, and then we see Max coming home.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then we see that there's been a fire at Mandalay. Yeah. But thankfully, Joan Fontaine did get out. But before that, though, we do see Mrs. Danvers roaming the halls of Mandalay yes. in the most I think the only time I've ever seen stalking that creepy in a film of that era and this is going to sound weird is actually Dracula from 1931. Sure. Um and it's just some of the smaller shots where you see Bela Lugosi kind of walking through different parts of the paraffits and stuff. Yeah. This is very similar but like obviously much more elegant and shot by Hitchcock. <laughs> so um uh there's a there's an element of her like we know she's going to set the fire it's almost like she's, like, getting one last look at the house. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know how to describe it. Or because, she's
1: continuing to do what she always did, the, which is tend to the house, the, but she's tending to the house while it burns down around her.
0: Exactly, it. because, like, and I'm not even sure if her intention at this point is to kill Joan Fontaine. I don't either. I yeah. think it's to purge the area of Rebecca for good, or or <laughs> to, to, or to... To go up in flames with her presence.
1: I think it's more that like, more of a like, look if 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 Rebecca can't have this, then Then no no one 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 should have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like this is all only Rebecca is worthy of this amazing place. Right.
0: Which we should also mention with Missus Danvers in the novel. Um, I did look this up earlier today. Huh? She's a much older lady. She's a mother, it's more of a of a, yes. of, of, a of a of a mother complex which yes. would be appropriate for Hitchcock, given that he's handled this subject many times before and would continue to do it into one of his most famous films. Yeah, it
1: would make it a less um sexual tension yeah. relationship and more of a uh, which I think is more the intention in the book. Yeah. Um. That yeah, she's more like, oh, I raised this woman, and so I love her, and I think she's perfect. Yeah. And then, but it's also more ambiguous as to how she ends. It's not. Yeah. It is not clear that she is in the house during the fire in the book. My yeah. understanding. Yeah. So. So
0: and in, and in the case of Hitchcock making changes, that, I guess, Selznick was fine with in this regard because you know, he did have a say over casting to a certain extent. Yeah. And Judith Anderson is much younger than what would be described in that book. So, um, at least by everything that I'm reading. So by that logic, that's one of those things that Hitchcock ultimately has like this film is a series of compromises for him, but he manages to create an identifiable Hitchcock piece Mm-hmm. inside of a David O. Selznick production, which is a tough job. I mean, you know, Gone with the Wind is an epic film, but it does not have really a director's identity in the film. There is a lot of a lot of the shots are dictated by what looks pretty, but they don't have the same intent as a director who's telling you this is why the shot works. Sure. Um, and that's partially because Gone with the Wind went through two directors. So, uh not everybody was working on it all at once. So, um, but so anyway, uh, uh, Dame Judith Anderson sets the house on fire. Max gets back. Oh, no, my house is on fire. Um, But Joan Fontaine comes out and is like, I got out. I got out fine. Do we have
1: any idea whether everybody else is okay?
0: It looks like the other staff is are. out okay, on the yeah, floor. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're Yeah, right, you're
1: no, right, they're, okay, they're
0: yeah. just chilling out there, maybe eating a sandwich, you know? As long as, uh,
1: whatever they, his name is, Rogers, the guy who almost gets blamed for breaking the china. No, like, that I, poor guy. As my, long as he made it out.
0: My theory is is that when he saw Mrs. Danvers starting to set fire to the house, he went, I'm out of here, man. Like, yeah, he, this he is crazy. Bolted, he bolted first. He's not even waiting to yeah. see if he's got a job tomorrow? He's just like, no, I'm sure my brother can get me a job on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. Nothing will happen there like a murder. And then <laughs> yeah. that's when he meets Hercule Poirot, and, and then Kenneth Branagh comes back into the moment again. Yep. Um, so this is all a way of saying that Kenneth Branagh is a part of the Hitchcock universe and the Hercule Poirot universe. Um, but so anyway, they meet up on the grounds going like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Where's Mrs. Danvers? And they all look back. That house is in fucking flames. There's there's things falling from the rafters and Mrs. Danvers has the look of the devil on her. Yeah. Like or like the look of you know what it is? It's the look I get when I see a movie I really like and I'm sitting in the theater watching it. And um but no, um but yeah, she goes down with the house. The camera kind of pushes through the wreckage of this fire in the West Wing, and we see the bed of Rebecca De Winter and the case for the lingerie still intact, but going up c- quickly to reveal the R on the pillowcase, and then it fades to the exterior of Mandalay. credits. There was another ending in this film that was proposed by David Amphetamine O'Selznick. And I'm going to try to recreate for you today how his pitch went. And then I want the whole house to go in flames! And then I want a giant R rising up from the smoke to show that the ghost of Rebecca is still there! Uh. The end in Alfred Hitchcock picture. That is what Mr. Oselstek wanted. He wanted a giant R in smoke to end this Otherwise, up to that point, great movie. If somebody out there wants to make an animated version of this on the internet and see what it would look like and see how dumb it would look, please yeah. do it. Because anything to further confirm that Oselznick was a nut. Um, yeah, we didn't need that. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Obviously, it gets taken out because Hitchcock is like, no, why? David, David, David. You're high. People get it. <laughs> we get it. We we get it. Uh, you know what? I, I've got this pillowcase right here that has the R uh, already. We saw it on the lingerie. It's obviously very important to Mrs. Danvers as a character. Why don't I just push in on that, and then we cut to the exterior of Manderley. And then that's the end of the movie. Know, great, I'll whatever. I'm working on Intermezzo right now. And
1: I'll just put up the title card again, and we'll all go home. Yeah, It'll be great.
0: great. Yeah. And I seriously, I need to work on Foreign Correspondent because it's 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 a much more in picture more important picture right now because uh, the fucking Nazis are coming. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then that's the end of Rebecca, a, a very complicated film, both from the production aspects, from the character aspects. It's really one of the uh, it's 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 one of the uh earlier uh, it's the earliest American Hitchcock horror film really if we're gonna, cause I I do after talking about it now like yeah Rebecca's a horror movie like you could show this at Halloween
1: but certainly like an early horror film right like it's a it's a proto version of of a of a ghost story mm-hmm. you know yeah um, um, um yes in the end it's a mystery team reveal of oops there was no <laughs> actual ghost um. But still, it—I mean—it's definitely playing on the trips.
0: Yeah, um, uh, th- the film was declared a success by critics, um, and um, uh, it earned uh, much money <laughs> at the box office. <laughs> All the money. Um, uh, I was trying to pick up the actual numbers here. Um, uh, the budget was a uh, million two hundred eighty-eight thousand, and it went on to make six million. Um, That's both in the U.S. and overseas. The film does get nominated for some Oscars. Um, uh, We get uh, nominations for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor, Olivier, Best Actress, Joan Fontaine, Best Supporting Actress, Judith Anderson, Best Editing, Best Music Score, Best Art Direction, Black and White, Best Special Effects, which is correct, Best Cinematography, Black and White, which it wins for, and Best Picture, which it wins for, for... Selznick International Pictures, and David, he did amphetamines. Oh, Selznick. <laughs> so the man who wanted the giant fucking R <laughs> yeah. won the Oscar. Meanwhile, best director Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, th- no, that goes to uh, John Ford. Uh, so well, for what? John Ford for The Grapes of Wrath.
1: Oh, that movie's not as good.
0: I I have you watched it recently? Yeah. Well, no. It's 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 pretty good. I watched it in high school. I don't think it's the best directed film of the Let me It was me, less boring than the book. Let, let me tell you the nominees here. Um and I'll all state up front, John Ford not one of my favorite directors, so that's why I might be throwing him under a bus. Um you've got Sam Wood for Kitty Foyle, which is an okay. Full. Okay. Uh, you got William Wyler for The Letter. I like William Wyler a lot because Spielberg likes William Wyler, and I think it's adorable when he talks about him in Five Came Back. Yeah. Um, and then you got Ju- George Q. Cor for The Philadelphia Story. So if Hitchcock's not going to win, please give it to George Q. Cor for The Philadelphia Story because yeah. that's an adorable film. Uh, And then Alfred Hitchcock for Rebecca. I really think we can all agree should have gone to Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca's the best of them. Interestingly enough, though, Foreign Correspondent by Hitchcock comes out this year as well and is also nominated for Best Picture and obviously does not win. Um, And you had a lot of films from that year that are great films that were nominated. The Great Dictator by Charlie Chaplin, that was nominated this year for Best Picture. Wow. The Letter, uh, the Betty Davis film, The Long Voyage Home, uh, Our Town, uh, and The Philadelphia Story, Kitty Foyle. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, All this in heaven, too. Um, So, anyway, it's a big success, but unfortunately it's a success for Selznick and not for Hitchcock. Hitchcock then proceeds to really try his hardest to get away from Selznick as fast as he can. What Selznick ends up doing is actually loaning him out to other studios, uh, which is partially how he uh, gets to do Foreign Correspondent. Um, and then Suspicion and the stuff he does with RKO, and then the first thing he does with Universal, which is Shadow of a Doubt, which is his favorite film, the way Selznick did this is that he loaned Hitchcock out and then got paid for Hitchcock to do work for them. Hitchcock got paid, but Selznick got paid to do nothing. So he's a pimp. Yes. Uh, David O. Selznick was an amphetamine-ridden pimp. Um, and uh, And you can quote me on that years later when I'm when I'm, you know, like writing a book about David O. Selznick, the fucknut, <laughs> yeah. I will have that on the back of my own book to reemphasize the statement. Yeah, the man who wanted the giant smoky R <sighs> in the end of Rebecca got Best Picture. Um, I'm sure a lot
1: of his ideas are in the film and are good.
0: Oh no, yeah. Again, like I'm, I'm making a joke because. Oh, I know, I know. He he also does a lot of things that frustrate me as a as a personal film. Guru. Yeah. But um, anyway, though, um, the film has an outstanding legacy, though, regardless of the frustrations Hitchcock had with it. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock does leave Selznick's, Selznick's employ, and he forms transatlantic pictures with his friend Sidney Bernstein. They make Rope and Under Capricorn, and then those bomb. He makes Stage Fright that then gets taken over by Warner Brothers, and thus Hitchcock then becomes a free agent to the studios. He then's ends up working for Paramount. So basically there's a road where that starts with Selznick where he loses a lot of freedom he had in the British Gamo period. And he goes off after Rebecca and does things like suspicion, shadow of a doubt, foreign correspondent, and really solidi- no, uh, spellbound, um, notorious, and really establishes his vision because those studios allowed him to do basically what he wanted mm. Um, suspicion, there are concessions to it. Notorious, there are concessions, but mostly through a plot thing because of the atomic bomb at the time. Mm -hmm. But he gets to do a lot more, and so then, finally, when he gets even out of the transatlantic period, he has the full show. So much so that when he even gets the TV show, he has even more power, and that's how he gets to make something like Psycho and have as much power as he does in the 60s. Yeah, Um, It's very outstanding for a director who uh most of his peers are already retiring at this point Um, except for john houston john houston decided to just do whatever he wanted and directed annie in the 80s but uh anyway um rebecca also inspires a lot of other films um it's part of a gothic romance tradition um, and uh, or a goth and a gothic romance, gothic horror tradition. So mm-hmm. like you've got your Wuthering Heights and other films like that, or, and other stories like that that get turned into films too. Um, in the more modern context, the most uh, direct cousins to to Rebecca at this point are Crimson Peak and Phantom Thread. Um, at least those are the ones that I see the most of. Um, now you haven't sure. seen Phantom Thread, no. Um,
1: I always I always think of Rebecca more in line with like. Uh, a, a William Faulkner short story like, hmm. it's it's very Rose for Emily feeling, um, reminds me a little bit of Poe's "Follow the House of Usher," mm-hmm. like, um, just some of that same those same veins of like, yeah, you know, a, I, a actually, lot of a lot of darkness tied to a location and that kind of thing.
0: Now I want to read the book and see how that how um how much that permeates because. The film gives off a Poe like feeling, even though it's very European influence. Yes. Like the film is very European influence, and yet the specter of it feels like a Poe creation, which is not quite American, but has a tie to it somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's through our perceptions about how relationships work or how the structure of the family works and stuff like that. Those different horrors kind of permeate through. And also the way it's presented, like uh, Hitchcock and his cinematographer on this film really give us a, I think a representation of what essentially a universal horror movie would look like if it had a lot of money. Hmm. That is kind of the vibe I get off of it. Yeah. Um. Because like, like any universal movie you have your lighter moments, but the, when the moments are dark here, they're really dark. Um, so, and then that's basically it for something like Rebecca. Um, uh, it's a film that I think, you know, I, it, it has two discs on a criterion. And I know that sounds like a weird point, but hear me out. This film is so beloved and studied that you need two discs on a criterion like that to get all the information you're getting and we're not even presenting like the the tip of the iceberg when it yeah. comes to uh, rebecca um and uh uh one second there's a lot of cool
1: stuff in there i i feel like if i'd seen this movie early in college i could have written a number of essays i could have worked it into like my lit theory classes um because there's there's some depth and some really cool interesting stuff going on that um is worth looking at
0: so, um we have a little segment on the show called the Hitchcock Cameo Corner.
1: Oh yes. That the, was the other thing is I don't remember where he is. Oh.
0: I'll tell you where he is. Great. So um uh uh Favel, uh the cousin, the the, the yes. car salesman. Right. Um goes to um uh, make a call in the phone booth.
1: To Danvers at the end?
0: Yeah, to Danvers at the end. Um and uh who's walking by but a portly gentleman. Sure. Uh, And that gentleman is Alfred Hitchcock. Sure. Now, the theory of this show is that the Hitchcock Cinematic Universe predates the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sure. And it's all connected by Alfred Hitchcock popping into things. Sure. So uh, we've already established that uh, Hitchcock in North by Northwest missed a bus at the beginning and then eventually found another bus, got on a plane, went to France, took uh, took a French bus... And then met Cary Grant on the bus. That sure, sure explains the To Catch a Thief cameo. Yes. Then he came back to America, got a cowboy hat, and waited outside a real estate office to talk about some property. And then uh, went and indulged in one of his favorite hobbies, which is walking his dogs. And he walked his dogs into a bird shop. And then he walked out of that bird shop as Tippy Hedren was walking in. Uh, and then later on, he went off to help his friend fix a piano, and while he was helping his friend fix a piano in this little uh, Greenwich Village Square, his friend was on the piano and he was saying, well, you know, you should sing a song and then increase uh, increase the speed and then they'll sound like little rodents. And Hitchcock created the chipmunks. So it's my guess that since this takes place in Europe, uh-huh. that before Hitchcock's character got to France to meet with Cary Grant, mm-hmm. he had to go. To, to london sure to yes you know do some business Hidaleo, or his, his,
1: his boat landed in london first yeah and, and he then he just, took a plane and, over to france and he
0: was like i want a sandwich and so he yeah. went and got a sandwich and as he's walking away from having gotten that sandwich george, uh, george Sanders's character is there mm. and then he goes on a plane or, or, or on another boat to france and then he goes to the bus where he meets carrie Grant. I um, think this is
1: I think that's perfect. I was going to recommend exactly that. Oh and also and, and also
0: he flies back to America from France via the airport in Topaz. So already the the, the connections it, you know what there's going to be a photo at some point of me with yeah, like one to, of those Jake Gyllenhaal this webs yes. from Zodiac.
1: You really do. You need to map all this out.
0: And then Chloe Sevigny is going to walk into my house going, like, what do you need to know? And I go, I need to know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> that was so forceful I knocked the mic out. Um, but so anyway, that's Hitchcock Cameo Corner. Cool. Yeah, so we're all, we're trying to figure out. How Kevin Feige didn't do this first. Where in the world
1: was Alfred Hitchcock? Yeah.
0: yeah, well, I mean, it's not as fun as where in the world was Carmen Sandiego, and it was m- very much less educational. I was gonna
1: say it, it requires me to know less about geography.
0: Yeah, exactly, and much more about food and wines. And- <laughs> um, but that's basically the end. Um, do you have any final thoughts on Rebecca James? Because um, you've you've You've, we've you know, touched think, on a lot here.
1: I think we covered it. I, I mean, I, I I might say that if uh, there's a remake in the '90s, I've never seen. Um, I would say that for the remake Was next it radical? Year, no, oh, God, <laughs> you wish. Um, no, who's in it now? I can't remember. Right, yeah, I want to say it's. Look it up right here. I want to say talking. it's somebody like Rebecca de Mornay, but it's not. Um, but that'd be great. That would be terrible. What I think you... it's 1997. Uh, it might be made for TV. Um, and then the. The, I would say for the remake next year, they they should they could just get Jay Leno to play Max, uh, or at least Jay Leno's chin, Jay Leno's chin on, on Army Hammer.
0: I don't want Max DeWinter to be talking about his garage.
1: No, we would not Or wouldn't. or stealing just Conan
0: be... O'Brien's job.
1: Army Hammer plays Max mm-hmm. DeWinter, but but Jay Leno's chin plays Max DeWinter's chin.
0: But I'm afraid that. That chin will become possessed and start wanting to talk about jaywalking segments. It's I mean, possible. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry. This is just not a risk I'm willing to take. I
1: think in today's in today's world where we can have human beings CG'd to look like terrible cat freaks, oh, we yeah. we can use that same technology to put Jay Leno's chin <laughs> onto Army Hammer's face. If we can, I, I just think I, I believe I. You know what? This holiday, I believe.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And cut to David Duchovny going, "Do you, do you (laughs) believe? Um, The, uh, the, I mean, if we live in a world where we can make Peter Cushing come back from the dead, then yes, it is possible. Exactly. I will offer the counterpoint: get Ben Affleck's chin, because it's much more restrained when necessary. Jay Leno's chin will go over the top.
1: Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure you could, like. Uh, Lawrence Olivia could, could hold a pen a penny in his chin like you could just you could just like squeeze it in there and it would stick mm-hmm. like so I'm just saying like you need a real you need a very pronounced chin you need the chiniest
0: of chins um, would you yeah. say it's a chin chinnery chin chinnery chin chin cheroo
1: you you need a like Kirk Douglas chin
0: Ooh. yeah yeah. Do, do you think we could well, we could find older Kirk Douglas chins and then yeah st- and then make them younger via the CGI and then put it on Army Hammer?
1: Okay, I'll I'll settle for that. If uh, uh, I'll, I'll settle for a CG version, a Peter Cushing CG version of Kirk Douglas's chin on Army Hammer from twentieth. If <laughs> we can't if we can't get Jay Leno, if Jay's too busy, yeah, if pro- Jay's chin's too busy.
0: Yeah, I would say it would have to be Kirk Douglas from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. It can't be any other film. Like Spartacus doesn't work. It's it's okay. too brightly lit. You need something a little bit more coolly lit, and sure. Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea takes place in a cool environment, which is the ocean. Sure. So, yeah. um, to answer your question about the nineteen ninety seven, it did not have Rebecca DeMorn. <laughs> <laughs> Who uh, was it? It has. Uh, it was a British German television show, and actually. Uh, fellow real nerd Corinne has talked about this with me before. Uh it has Charles Dance. Yes. Diana Rigg plays Mrs. Danvers. Amelia Fox plays the second Mrs. Uh DeWitt uh DeWinter. De um uh and then Faye Dunaway is in it. Jonathan Cake. Geraldine James Lucy oh. Cohu.
1: I just realized why I get confused. Uh Rebecca De Mornay plays Lady DeWinter in the the Disney Three Musketeers film. So oh. hence, yeah, uh, oh, possibly so, actually no, 100%, so hence this was way off one hundred percent the most attractive lady to winter, yeah,
0: uh, Charles dance, in this is Maxim de winter, so oh, there you that, go. that's a that's a pretty good, yeah. maybe we could get Charles dance's chin, yeah, to substitute,
1: see, I'm just saying chin very important to the role, yeah, exactly, so. But,
0: so anyway, that's Rebecca. That's James, yeah. do you have anything you want to plug before you leave our good graces here at the Shamley Silhouette?
1: Um, every now and then I guest spot on a podcast called The Real News Podcast, <laughs> oh. which is also where you're no, hearing you this. No, are, you are still um, a host of the show. Man, no, I think I'm. I think I. I think this is it. I think this is. This is it. This, um, is, this is
0: your last podcast. This is the end. Get, get of,
1: this is the end of all the things I'm ever gonna do. Um, well, here we eight, are. At Eighteen the years e- from now, you can expect something else from me.
0: Yeah. Here we are at the end of all things. Oh. There's a boat with Hugo weaving and Hella, Hella from Thor Ragnarok, <laughs> and the clock from Beauty and the Beast, who is also. Um, uh, Sherlock Holmes in that older Sherlock Holmes movie that I love called Mr. Holmes and they're going to take young Kevin from Sin City and uh, the the, the scientist from Day After Tomorrow off Rudy. to the Great Shores.
1: Rudy's there and he's very sad.
0: Yeah, Rudy's very sad. Um, Bob uh, is a superhero. Peregrine Took because I don't remember what else Billy boyd Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. Um,
1: that guy from Master and Commander. Uh, Thank you. That
0: guy who plays Chucky and Tiffany's son in seat of Chucky. Ex- wow. Yeah, that is true. Uh and also that guy from Lost, who was also on the uh um uh the big three podcast for a while. Yeah. So um,
1: uh, Evangeline Lily's ex boyfriend.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: I, I, don't, I don't. oh got yeah, all but, kinds of dish for you.
0: Welcome to our new show, L L O T R Gossip. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, not gossip. I'm gonna start a new
1: podcast that's just gossip about the people from Lost from back when Lost was on TV. <laughs>
0: Do you time travel back to Twitter? No.
1: No, we just we just we just gossip about we just talk about all the things that were fun to talk about back when Lost was on TV. Oh man, did you see that video where like the mice get into Jorge Garcia's house or whatever it was? No, it was a giant spider, whatever it was. But-
0: my God, did you see that trailer for Cloverfield? I think I saw Slusho in there. Oh, oh. Slusho!
1: Oh man, remember Heroes? It was gonna be good. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Th- these are the things you could talk about in the in the late 2000s. You know, man, yeah.
1: Slusho was a big deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. hey guys, they're gonna make a Transformers movie. Oh.
1: Do you think Do you think Slusho will make an appearance in Quentin Tarantino's fucking Pulp Fiction in space? God damn it, that's not I, what I, I want.
0: I, I don't know, man. I don't know. I haven't thought it out yet. I know there's going to be some red apple cigarettes. I know that there's going to be a jukebox and a, a jukebox in space. Can you dig it, man? Can People do not it? smoke in space. <laughs> and, and, you know what? And they, they're going to talk about space foot massages. They're not going to talk about just regular foot massages. Jack, uh, I like doing Quentin. <laughs> and what's sad is that I don't want to. I I don't want to make fun of it, but I'm just like that is a very unique speaking style. <laughs> um. But uh so anyway that has been the shamley silhouette for this week. Um check back with us twice a week to hear more fun and possibly insightful conversations about the work of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, you can follow me on uh Instagram at, at @realnerdzack. You can uh follow me also on the Real Nerds podcast where I podcast each and every week about the movies that we see um by the time this is released we may be talking about an august movie of some kind i don't know maybe hobbs and shaw for all i know hobbs and shaw. there's also the possibility that it won't be on that week because i may be out of town but anyway um and then like i say next episode we will be talking to a uh a wonderfully creative gentleman uh who is going to come with us to discuss not a specific film but a certain aspect of an entire career Um, And how Alfred Hitchcock took, like, how Hitchcock took uh, very uh, lowbrow concepts and turned them into high high art. Hmm. Um, So until next time, this has been the Shanley Silhouette. Good night.